1 Corinthians chapter number 2. Thank you so much for your participation in the service this morning. I trust that you have already been blessed, that the Lord has done a work in your heart, teaching you things that you needed to know, and blessing you. This morning's message will be, you're going to have to think, okay? Um, it won't be a lot of illustrations and that kind of thing. It's going to require you. We're going to try to answer three questions this morning. And so you're going to have to, to, get in, to go anywhere. You've got to do a little thinking today. And so kind of prepare yourself for that. Um, you'll have to kind of listen on purpose. There's not going to be so much of the candy to kind of keep you going. You'll have to kind of decide to do that uh, on your own to make that happen. First Corinthians chapter number 2, please. Verse number one, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is not the first time that we have been in this passage of Scripture. There is so much that could actually be discussed from these five verses. Verse 4 and 5, without a doubt, are the need of every church in the world. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, in the last 75 years, the church has gotten organized. We now, in most cases around the world, operate like well-oiled machines. We have plans and programs and committees. We have property, facilities, and money. We see a need or an opening, and we quickly organize to rush in and meet it. But for all of that, all the organization that we've got, all the facilities we've got, all of that, the world is not impressed. It's really no wonder. Ask yourself, this isn't one of the questions we're going to answer today, but ask yourself, name one thing that we do better than the world. Their organizations are giants compared to ours. Their facilities make ours look sick. Their programs are massive. You know, only, we only dream about having crowds like they draw. And as for money... Do you realize that we give as much money to their programs as we give to our own? That was a staggering thought to me this morning. When I, we give as much money to their programs as we give to our own programs. What have we done to impress them? What is there to impress them? So the only solution that we can find is to change the churches to be more like them, to try to attract a few of them in, more down their own way of thinking. And it's shocking 
how far down the road we have gone in order to try to attract them. But you know, verse 4 and 5 tells us what the real attraction of the church should be. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know what the attraction of the church is supposed to be? The power of God. We, with all of our efforts, are not going to beat the world at their own game. But we do have something that they don't. We have God. A God who loves us. A God who provides for us. A God who works on our behalf. You know, the, the gods of the world are all takers. But our God is a giver. You know, if we're going to win this world to Christ, it won't be because of our programs, our organization, or our facilities. It will be because God's power and his love are demonstrated in this place. He is the one and only big deal here. He is exalted, and everyone else and everything else is in the dust. Now, that's not the message for this morning, but I think it ought to be the goal of everybody in this church that it is the power of God that is demonstrated it is the wisdom of God that is, and the love of God that is shown from this place. That's not the message, but all week long, three words from this passage have been beating in my brain. Verse number two. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Those last three words have been running through my mind over and over and over again this week. The title of this mess, the morning's message is, And Him Crucified. Let's pray. Father, I believe with every fiber of my being that we cannot get there from here if you don't take us. I believe with everything that is in me, that we cannot change one heart or meet one need on our own. I believe that this is a total waste of time if your spirit does not move. But Father, I believe you. And I believe that you said that you loved us and provide all things in Christ for us. And I believe that you have given your spirit to work. And so in faith, not in us, but in you, Father, I'm asking that you would meet every need in this facility, every need of every heart that is listening via the live stream. Father, without exception, I'm asking you to work in every person, in every heart, in every life. This is a work worthy of your own name, purchased for us by Jesus Christ, and we ask for it now, and thank you in advance for what you're going to do, for we ask this in the precious name of our Savior. Amen.
before we get into the three words and him crucified, let's ask ourselves the first question. What is Paul talking about here when he says he only wants to know Jesus Christ? For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ. What is Paul talking about here? Give you a second to get your mind at work. What is he talking about? What did he mean? Do you suppose that the Apostle Paul just meant salvation? When many Christians talk about knowing Christ, salvation is all that they mean. They're talking about knowing Christ as your Savior. Do you think that this is all that Paul meant, what he had in his mind here? I saved only one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. And he's only talking about salvation? Salvation is important for sure. But Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Now these people were misguided and backslidden, no doubt. But mostly this was saved people. Is this all Paul was meaning? He's trying to lead them to a place where they're already at? I'm going to tell them, I just want to know salvation among you. With a bunch of saved people. To know Christ as your Savior is the first step indeed, but surely there's a lot more than this, than salvation in knowing Christ. What did he mean? Let's answer this question. Do you suppose that he meant knowing the doctrine of Christ that are found in the Scriptures? Do you suppose this is what the Apostle Paul meant? That he wanted to know the doctrines of Christ that are found in the Scriptures. You know, I think in the churches as a whole, not just this church, but the churches as a whole, we have two kinds of people in them these days. <clears throat> we have those who know almost nothing about the Bible and what it teaches and are fine with that. They don't care to know anymore. They almost know nothing and that's good enough for them. And we have those who have studied all the ins and outs of certain doctrines and formed their opinions and are ready to fight about it. It seems like those are the two types of people we have. You know, it reminds me a lot of Paul in the book of Acts in chapter number 23. He's on trial. And he realizes that in this trial, half of the crowd is Pharisees and half of them are Sadducees. <coughs> and so Paul, he actually kind of apologizes for this later on. He realized the Pharisees don't believe it, or the Pharisees believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And they're all ganged up against him, and so he just blurts out right in the middle of this mess. Of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, am I called into question? So this group that was unified against him is now split. And half of them are defending Paul, and the other half are still mad at him. I think if we got an average group of Christians together. All you have to do is mention some specific doctrine or some specific topic, and this unified group will split down the middle and be madder than hornets at each other. And it depends on which topic or which doctrine that you mention, the group will divide a different way depending on that on that topic, which one you mention. I have trouble with that. 
for those who know, who claim to know Christ as Savior and know very little of the Scriptures and they don't care to know anymore, I don't have anything to say to you because I don't know, I don't understand you at all. I do not understand that group of people. For from my earliest days of salvation, I knew that this was important. I read the Bible through for the first time. Was I in, when I finished the seventh grade, I'd read the Bible from cover to cover because I knew this book was important. And I don't understand a person who has known Christ and doesn't care to know more. There's something wrong there. I'm just telling you right now, there's something I don't understand about that. Because a true believer, there's something that draws them to know what the Bible says and what God has to say. I, I, I don't understand being okay living in ignorance of the Scripture. And Paul here is not advocating ignorance of Bible doctrine. Ask yourself, did anybody understand and expound deeper truth than the Apostle Paul? Peter says, boy, Paul, he talks about stuff that's just hard to understand. Paul knew Bible doctrine. But what is he saying here? He's saying is that knowing doctrine is not the same as knowing Christ. To know doctrine without truly knowing Christ is to miss the point entirely. He says, I purpose to know Christ, not merely salvation and not just doctrines of the Bible. Paul wanted to know, really know Jesus Christ. You have to remember, the Apostle Paul is, a, a, is an apostle born out of due time. What does that mean? He was born out of due time. Consider all the other apostles. All of the other apostles had spent three and a half years with the Lord Jesus. You understand that, right? They had spent day in, night and day for three and a half years. They had seen the Lord in a thousand different situations and circumstances. They had seen how he acted. They had seen how he talked. They had seen his emotions. They had seen his attitudes for three and a half years. They had very solid knowledge of the Lord. What did the Apostle Paul know? All the time that that was all taking place while the, the Apostles were spending time with the Lord Jesus, his name was not even Paul. He was alive at the time. To my knowledge, there is no record or reference to, the, to Saul ever having any kind of interaction with the Lord Jesus ahead of the road to Damascus. So he saw nothing of this. Would he have heard of the Lord Jesus? Without question, Israel's not that big of a country, and this is a very well-known deal. So he would have, without question, what would his knowledge have been? Hearsay and twisted. Twisted by what? His own prejudice. He was a Pharisee. His own prejudice against him would have twisted, and everything that he had thought previous to the road to Damascus would have all been on the negative side of things. He had no positive knowledge of the Lord Jesus, if you, can, if you can get where I'm going here. So now, on the road to Damascus, he's knocked down. He has his first true meeting with the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has already, already risen from the dead. He's gone. 
He has his first true meeting with him. He is way behind all of the other apostles in his knowledge of the Lord Jesus. They have had three and a half years of interaction entirely, completely, constantly with the Lord Jesus, and he does not have that. And what does he say? I want to know Christ. Christ was supreme. He had determined to know Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3.10, he says it this way, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. He's not the only one who says this. Peter cries out in 2 Peter chapter number 1, verse number 3, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Christ is supreme. They wanted to know Christ. And you've got to know that that's more than just being saved, or knowing the teachings of the Bible. They wanted to know Christ. So what does he mean? He wants to have personal, experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what he means, question number one. Question number two, he uses three words to describe Christ that almost in our mind might be redundant. I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul wanted to know the crucified Christ. So question number two, what other Christ is there? <coughs> what other Christ is there? You have to put yourself into the Jewish mindset. Who have the Jews been looking for, had they been looking for, and still actually looking for, all of this time? They had been looking for the Messiah. They had been looking for the Anointed One. They had been looking for the Christ. They were looking for this person to come to do what? to liberate them, to restore them. You have to think, think back into the days of King David and King Solomon. What amazing days in the life of Israel. Think about what that meant. They were a world power. They were dominating the scene. They, everybody was basically subservient to them. How wealthy were they? What did it say about silver in those days? They didn't even count it. If you found a silver coin in your coin in your change, what would you do with that? You can give it to me if you I'll trade you a quarter for your every nickel you find that's solid silver. <laughs> you say, silver, boy, that's worth something here. They didn't even count it in the days of Solomon. And this anointed one, this Christ, was in their mind coming to restore that. They're under the the, the boot of the Romans. 
and somebody's going to come and boot the Romans out and put us back in the glory days. That's what they're looking for. Paul says, that's not what I'm looking for. The crucified Christ is not what the Jews were looking for, but Paul was. This is the Christ that Paul wanted to know. I'm going to say something here that may offend you. I don't intend to. I'm going to say it anyway. I don't mean to upset people, but I'm going to say it because I believe it to be the truth. Over the past few years, you have heard a lot of Christians quoting 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, restore and heal their land. Heard a lot of Christians praying that. But you want to know the honest truth about most of that? Most of that had nothing, and I mean nothing, to do with their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And had everything to do about restoring America back to what it used to be. And that, my friends, is not Bible Christianity. And that was not the point of the verse to leave our relationship with the Lord basically as is and put the United States back on the map as a world power with an economy that we like where we have plenty of money coming in. And I hate to say it, and if that offends you, I'm sorry, but that is not what God intended. And that's why we're not seeing that verse answered in our land because our relationship with God is far more important than our wallet or our political influence in the world. And we as God's people had better get a handle on this. Paul says, I don't want to just know Christ. That's what all the Jews are looking for. I want to know the crucified one. Do you see the difference? He's not looking for a political leader, but the Savior of the world. What other Christ is there? Paul says, I'm looking for the crucified Christ. Well, it's not the one the Jews were looking for. What other Christ is there? Well, there is the Christ of Luke 2 and Matthew 1 and 2. That little baby in the manger. You know, almost nobody has a problem with that. Okay, yes, the political crowd... The political correctness crowd has removed almost all religious symbols from the holiday. But the average person has no problem with a manger scene. They have no problem singing away in a manger. The average American, the average person doesn't have any difficulty with that. Because you know what? A baby's not an issue. Everybody loves a baby. And as you have this baby, I mean, what's there not to like? I mean, think about all the family get-togethers that happened from the holiday from this particular baby and how all the, the enjoyment we get from this time period from this baby. Nobody has a problem with that. Nobody had a problem with the baby in the manger. You know where the problem came? 
when the man Christ Jesus lived a perfect life in front of them. That's where the problem came in. So everybody would say, I'll take the Christ in the manger. Paul said, not me. I'm looking for the crucified Christ. That's the one I want to know. I'm not looking for some politician to lead Israel. I am not looking for some baby that's okay with everybody. I am looking for the crucified Christ. What other Christ would there be? Well, there are the false Christs. Christ who come on the scene and lead people astray. Typically, death ends leadership. Right? This is what Gamaliel was trying to tell them in is that Acts 5, I believe it is. Yes, in Acts 5, Gamaliel is trying to, they're, they're having this riot, and Gamaliel is trying to, tr- to calm the people down, and he gives them two examples. He said, hey, remember Thutis or Thotis or how you say that? Remember him? He led all those people away, then he died, and guess what happened? Nothing. And after that, there was Judas of Galilee, and he led a whole bunch of people away, and he died, and guess what happened? Nothing. Death generally ends leadership. There are these false Christs. The Apostle Paul says, I want to know the crucified one. Because death did not end his leadership. It is still going strong. And I don't want just a political leader. And I don't want just some innocent baby. I want the crucified Christ who is risen and still on the throne. What other Christ are there? Those are other ones. And Paul says, I don't want any of those. I want and him crucified. Third question. And getting close to being done here. Why is knowing the crucified Christ important? Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why is knowing the crucified Christ so important? One, the crucified Christ shows us the cost of sin. The crucified Christ shows us the cost of sin. You know, the laxness, the laxness of our view of sin is a problem that has plagued God's people for centuries. Now, we do see some sins, like murder or somebody breaking into our house and stealing our stuff. We have put, turn a kind of a frown to those things and say, those are bad, we should not be involved in those. But most sin, we tolerate pretty well. A little cheating here and there. A little bitterness in our heart. A tongue that is used improperly. A mind that thinks on things that it shouldn't. A little hatred, a little animosity a few grudges or vendettas, pride and arrogancy, and self-pity. We look on those things with kindly eyes and let them live undisturbed in our hearts. You know the baby Jesus has no effect on those? 
you could stare at that manger for a hundred years and not have it affect your sin. The teaching, healing, miracle-working Jesus has very little effect on our attitude toward sin. He's just doing some really nice work. But when we truly see the sinless Son of God hanging in open shame, bleeding from his head, his hands, and his feet, suffering the, ang the agony of a torturous death, when we see that Jesus Christ, the crucified Christ, it's when we see him that the price of sin, the sin that we condone, the sin that we harbor, the sin that we even encourage in our lives, when we see that crucified Christ hanging in open shame, things change. Until we know the crucified Christ, sin will live unchallenged in our hearts. In the crucifixion of Christ, we see the cost of sin you don't know Christ as your Savior today, this death on the cross was for your sin. It is a complete payment, a settling of your debt, a paid, paid in full. He rose from the dead. He is your only hope of salvation, and today, let today be that day of salvation for you. But if you're here and you know Christ as your Savior, when you know the crucified Christ, you'll start seeing your sin. And it won't be acceptable any longer when you see him hanging, bleeding on a tree for that sin. Why is it important? Because in the crucified Christ, we see the cost of sin. Two, in the crucified Christ, the love of God is unmistakable. In the crucified Christ, the love of God is unmistakable. I don't know about you, but in the world today, people make, do things that seem strange. Sometimes their actions think, why in the world did you do that? I have found, though, with dealing with people, generally speaking, if you understand the situation completely, and you understand what they were thinking at the time, most people's actions are understandable. Let me, let me put it to you. You don't agree with them, and they weren't right, but you understand them. For instance, King David, in this whole mess with Bathsheba, there's not one piece of it that you agree with that he did. But at every point, you understand why he did what he did. You're like, that was dumb, David, but I, I see why you did that. You shouldn't have, but you, you shouldn't have done it, but I see why you did it. None of his actions are like, what? What was he trying to get done with that? We, you walk through the whole thing, and you know, Haman, a despicable character in the Bible. But at every turn, you know exactly why he did what he did. Most people's actions are understandable. If you understand the situation, you understand and that you may not agree with it, but you understand why they did what they did. Now, let's put this thought process with God. God creates the world. Why would he do such a thing? Well, that's not very difficult. 
if God is a creative God and he wants to create. We can understand that, right? Everybody here, the ladies are all have their craft room, the guys all have their shop, and we create things because that's what we want to do. We create something. So we could look at God and say he wanted to create something, so that's what he did. We could understand those actions at that If we looked at God, why would he come to earth? Well, if God were curious, want to know what was going on, want to have a new experience, we could see that. You've done that. You've wanted to have a new experience with something, and so you stepped outside of your comfort zone to have a new experience. You were curious, and so you got yourself involved in something. So we could understand God coming to earth. Him dying on a cross. If it were an accident, you could say, I can see that. He didn't mean to do it, and all of us here have gotten ourselves into some kind of near-death situation, haven't you? You think, man, I should have gotten killed there, or I almost got killed there. If things would have gone a little bit different, I would have gotten killed. So if it was an accident, we could say, look, God came, he was curious, and the next thing you know, things got out of hand, and he accidentally got killed. But tell me, if you would, how we find Jesus Christ, God the Son, dying on a cross on purpose. This was no accident. It was a plan that was being worked. Explain those actions and the reasons behind them for me, if you would, please. Could it be that we were so valuable? You aren't that foolish, are you? You were a fly speck on a fly speck in a fly speck in the universe. You have no intrinsic value. You have nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing you can do that God needs. You aren't anything now, and you know what? You're never going to be anything. So, why? And there is only one answer that will come up, that makes any of this make sense, and that is the love of God. You say, with love. Oh, okay, it all, the actions make sense when you, when you come to love. But it's a love that we don't even understand because were you a friend of God when he did all this? No. You had linked yourself with his sworn enemy. And in fact, you were an enemy of God when he came and did this. Paul says, I want to know the crucified Christ. Why? Because in the crucified Christ, the love of God is unmistakable. Why is it important? Our third and last reason here. In the crucified Christ, the line is drawn in the sand between God and the world. In the crucified Christ, the line is drawn in the sand between God and the world. The origin of the phrase, a line in the sand, is touted to be from the Alamo. Now, lots of stories and so forth have come from the Alamo there in Texas. We'll leave the historians to decipher the fact and fiction from all of those things that have been said. But it is purported that when the Alamo was realized that it could not be held and defended permanently, that Colonel Travis took his sword and drew a line down the middle of the, in the sand, and he stepped over the line and said, we can't hold the fort, 
I'm staying because it's my job to stay. Anybody who wants to stay here and defend the Alamo with me is welcome to cross the line. You can stay on that line. Everybody on that side of the line can sneak out of here and get away. But you're on this side of the line. We're staying. We're going to defend this place. History, the legends tell us that everybody crossed over the line and stayed, and they dragged Jim Bowie across the line because he couldn't walk. That's what history says. I don't know anything about all that. But that's the origin of the, of the, of the line in the sand. <clears throat> we all understand what it means. In the crucifixion of Christ, the line in the sand was drawn. Get my meaning here. Before Christ was crucified, there were mixed emotions and so forth about Christ. Think about Nicodemus. Where was Nicodemus in all this? Which side was he on? Well, he comes to Christ by night, but he's still one of the Pharisees, and you know he wasn't the only one of the Pharisees that were doing this. Okay, there was lots of debate going on back and forth. And so you could kind of straddle the line. It wasn't clear quite where everybody was going to fall out on this. But when they crucified Christ, the line was drawn. The world declared, we do not value the Son of God and his actions. We, don't, we think that's worthy of death. And we are going to actively rebel against God. That's the one side. So you have the world on one side and you have God on the other. There is no straddling. There is no in-between any longer. You are on one side or the other. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes on to say later on, I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. What does that mean? What it means is the world looks at me and says, you have no value. And I look at the world and say, your whole system and everything it offers has no value whatsoever. We're crucified to each other. We have no value, no worth to each other. There is a line in the sand, and the crucified Christ is the one that drew it there. And you cannot stand on both sides. You are either a friend of a God or a friend of the world. You are either an enemy of the world or an enemy of God. There is no in-between on this. And the Apostle Paul said, I was on that other side, you know. I was murdering all those people that I could get my hands on. He said, but now I only want to know the crucified one. I know which side I'm lined up on here. And I only want to know Jesus Christ. I don't want to know him crucified. Let's pray.